welcome to the Hot Copy Podcast, a podcast for copywriters all about copywriting. My name is Kate Toon. I'm the founder of the Clever Copywriting School and the Recipe for SEO Success eCourse. And this is my co-host, Belinda Weaver. Yep, that's me. I'm a copywriter. I'm the founder of Copyright Matters and the Copywriting Masterclass. Today, we're talking all about copywriting and finances. Yes, we're doing it. We're digging deep into that really boring subject of accounting and money and all that good stuff. And we are talking to the lovely Karen Goad. Hello, Karen. Hi, Kate. Hi, Belinda. Thanks for joining us. So Karen is a small business owner and the principal of Goad Accountants and Simply Business Bookkeeping, uh, an accounting group that specializes in helping businesses, business owners know their business better through up-to-date financial information for better decision-making, accurate GST, CGT, and income tax advice. See, she's lost me already. Karen has over 18 years uh, working in public practice with small businesses ranging from startups and sole traders to businesses with with over $20 million turnover. I assume that's me. I'm joking. <laughs> so today we're going to dig deep into finance and copywriting. Let's get started. A lot of our content today is going to focus on Australia. We hope some of our tips will be useful to listeners in other countries, but be advised that every country has different tax laws and you should consult your local accountant for more info. Also, we should state for the record that what we're talking about the show on the show today does not constitute financial advice. Okay? Everyone got that? Cool. So let's get straight in. We're not we're gonna we're gonna drop the personal question today, Belinda, because we've got a lot to cover. Is that okay? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think this is gonna be a meaty one. It's a meaty one. Okay, so uh Karen, most copywriters set up as sole traders, but is there any value in going with a PTY limited company or a family trust? What are the tax tax implications of this? Um thanks to Joanna Kohler for this question, by the way. Yeah, so sole trader or something else? Okay. Yeah, so we, we get this question a lot from um, sole traders and there is um, some pros and cons with going with the company trust, but there's also some extra costs that um, come with um, those structures as well. From a company point of view, there's the setup cost, which can be around about the $1,200 plus the ongoing sort of ASIC and um, tax costs as well. Uh, but from a, a tax point of view, um, there is potentially some benefits. So, First off, a, a company pays tax in its own right um, and currently for small business um, companies, so people with turnover less than $2 million, um, the company tax rate is about 28.5%. Um, from 1 July, it's going to drop to about 27.5%, so an extra 1% drop. Um, so just on a simple basis, if you compare that to the top marginal tax rate for individuals or sole traders, this is currently 45% plus another 2% of Medicare levy. So one of the obvious advantages of a company is its tax rate. Okay. Um, on the I'm going to stop and interrupt you at time. Just repeat what you've said so that we're really clear. So the corp- company tax rate is going to be around 27.5% and the, per- the top rate for, for just individuals is around 47 with an extra little bit for Medicare levy. So it sounds a lot lower. It um, does sound a lot lower. The um, For individuals, though, we get taxed on a progressive um, 
progressive basis. So what that means is we start from 0% for um, incomes to 18200 and then we work our way up through the thresholds to the 45% plus Medicare levy. Um, so to actually have a comparable tax rate to a company, an individual needs to have a taxable income around the $105,000 before they have an average tax rate of 27.5%. Okay, so before it goes over that margin, so you need, again, forgive me, but I'm just going to talk in human speak after each. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you basically need to be earning over, you need to be have a profit of over $100,000 before it becomes something worth talking about. That's correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, from a, a non-tax point of view, from a legal point of view, there may be benefits um, in asset protection that a company may be worthwhile for, um, but that's um, from a legal uh, perspective. Okay. Because as a sole trader, correct me if I'm wrong, your um, assets are up for grabs if you have any liability costs or anything like that. Yeah, potentially. So if there was um, litigation involved, your assets as a sole trader may be um, accessible by the creditors. Okay. So um, again, I'm just going to repeat. So you have to be over 100 grand-ish for profit for it to be not net, for it to be worthwhile. But there might be advantages for other reasons, like you know, if you get sued, basically you could lose all your assets unless you have a, a company set up. Is that right? Am I understanding yes, that? Correct. Cool. Correct. And what about family trusts? Uh, so, a family trust um, it gives the it can give similar asset protection benefits if you've got a corporate trustee. Um, but from a tax perspective, um, it gives you flexibility in who you distribute the income to. So, if you've got um, multiple family members that um, may be involved in the business, you can distribute there and gain some advantage um, tax-wise by using up everybody's tax um, thresholds um, to minimise overall tax. Um, there's complex rules, so potential anti-avoidance rules um, regarding that. So you need to be a little bit careful when using family trusts, um, particularly around the copywriting or creative businesses. Okay, interesting. And I guess the truth is as well, if you do set up a, a PTY, you have to do your own tax return and a business tax return. Is that right? That's correct, yep. So there's that's the additional cost each year you've got to wear. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. I can't. Still can't decide whether I should do it or not. But hey, never mind. Let's move on. Uh, it out. We've only done one question. That's brilliant. I know. <laughs> oh gosh, it still makes my brain melt. Uh, and still, I don't know why. I'm not good with numbers. I one still of the questions know. I get asked, if I can yeah. just uh, jump in, because one of a lot of my students ask me what accounting platforms I'm using. So jumping across from structures into kind of tools. I know when I started out, I just used to do my invoices in Word and uh, use an Excel spreadsheet. But now I use Zero, and I'm you use Zero as well, don't you, Kate? Yeah, I love Zero. I love Zero. So, Karen, my question for you is, is using an application like Zero or another one better from an accountant's point of view? What's your favourite tool? Uh, my favourite is definitely Xero. I love it, and um, any accountant would love it if you use Xero too. It's um, 
it's so simple and it makes things just um, so much easier at the end of the year um, and much better for you guys during the year. Um, as you know, Zero makes it um, really easy to send out invoices to clients. Um, you've got that option to put the link in so they can pay using PayPal or Stripe. Um, there's the option for auto invoice reminders. So instead of you having to chase up people for payment, um, you can set um, automatic reminders to go out to them. So it's just zero is just an absolute favourite of mine and, and probably about 95% of our clients do use it. Um, but there is other software out there um, and whether that's Maya, QuickBooks, Reckon, um, or even this um, free accounting software, so such as Wave. Um, but an accounting package is better than um, using that, is better than having nothing at all or even an Excel spreadsheet. Cool. Yeah, so basically at least use some kind of software um, that has like cloud functions and automatic bank feeds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you'll be saving yourself time. You'll be making it easier for your accountant at the end of the year and you'll be able to um, produce profit and loss and, and know how you're tracking during the year. With an Excel spreadsheet, um, you might be able to record all the transactions, but you have no idea if you're making a profit or not. Yeah, yeah. I used to have an Excel spreadsheet too, and it used to just—I used to keep deleting lines, and oh, it was a nightmare to be honest. So, um, I mean, it's not cheap, zero. I think I don't, can't remember how much a monthly subscription is. Do you know, Karen? It's a, it starts from about twenty-five dollars, and the average one's about fifty dollars a month, though. Yeah, I think it's worth it for the amount of time and effort you save. So, yeah, definitely. And yeah. um, we're not all working for zero, by the way. This this podcast is not sponsored by zero. <laughs> I wish it were, but hey, maybe they'll listen to it and give us some money. I'm joking. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's talk about GSG. Oh, which here we go. Goods and Services Tax in Australia. In England, uh, I think it's called VAT or something like that. What, what do they have in the US, Belinda? Um, I have no idea, to be honest, because there's, <laughs> there's state taxes and federal taxes and city taxes, and I, I lose track. Okay, well, we're going to focus on Australia, and we know that GST needs to be paid when we reach a certain income level. Uh, Karen, what is that income level? Um, so it's when you when your annual turnover reaches seventy five thousand dollars. So that's your turnover, not your profit. That's correct. So it's your current or your projected um, annual turnover. Okay, and how about if I start the year thinking I'm not going to make $75,000, but then halfway through the year I think, hey, maybe I will, or actually I do reach that figure. Do I then, what happens then? Do I have to register for GST for the whole financial year or just when I reach the threshold? Do I have, what happens? Yeah. Um, you need to register for GST once you meet um, one of the two criteria. So um, the two criteria is basically my current turnover test. So this is your turnover for the current month. So if we're in June and the previous 11 months, um, and if you've reached 75 grand um, turnover then, then you must register for GST and pay GST on future turnover. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a second test which often gets overlooked, and that's the projected turnover. So if you're back in January this year and you have a fairly good idea that you will reach 75 grand during a 12-month period, then you're also required to register for GST. So you're looking at your current month plus the previous 11, um, sorry, the next 11 months, and if that's going to be more than 75 grand, you must register from then too. But I guess what's confusing for me is, say I didn't think I was going to 
reached the figure and I didn't register um, and I haven't been charging my clients GST all year and then I do register do I owe you know do I owe them money for all that GST that I didn't charge that I should have been charging um, you only owe for the point in time where you reach the 75 so if you um, look at a profit and loss you realize you've reached 75 grand in June um, sorry at the end of May um, but you it's midway through June um, then you should be registering from um, the end of May and covering that couple of weeks of GST. So, yeah, if, if you forget, like if, you, if you've actually, this is another reason to have a good picture of your profit and loss. So if, it's, if you actually go over that figure in January but you don't realise it until June and in the interim you haven't been charging GST, you will owe that GST, won't you? That's correct, yes. Yes, that's what happened to my husband. And I, oh, he didn't re- yeah, he didn't realise he'd gone over and like six months later he kind of cottoned on and he, he hadn't been charging. So that GST had to come out of his income, you know, he owed it. So it was horrible. And as you said, Kate, that's another great reason for getting a proper tool to track your finances and actually, heavens forbid, looking at your profit and loss every now and then, which I never do. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And I think there's another interesting question which uh, um, came up in my uh, clever copywriting community, which is that a lot of copywriters um, believe that not charging GST makes them look quite small time and that charging it charging it makes you look more professional so even though they don't think they're going to go over the 75 they register for it and they charge it anyway and pass it on to the government what do you thought, think about that Karen? Yeah, it's a common, it's another common concern we see from our clients as well, the smaller clients. Um, as the GST threshold is so um, well known, a seventy-five grand, by not being registered for GST, you're immediately sort of sticking a flag up and saying, "I'm I'm a small guy." Um, so there is, it depends. If it if you believe by not um, being registered and appearing a little bit smaller than your competitors, if that's going to make or break landing a client then it may be worthwhile registering. Um, One of the things I did, I actually registered for GST as soon as I registered my business, um, not for the reason you've mentioned, Kate, but I actually wanted to build the GSC, GST kind of processing into my own processes as early as possible. Like I didn't want to get into the habit of doing my invoicing and my tax and my accounts and then have to learn this different thing that I had to account for later on. So I was like, I'm going to just going to do this from day one. So I don't have to figure this out again later on. But isn't, I mean, really all it is is adding 10% on your prices, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing complex to it or am I missing something? No, 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 it it is, but it's kind of, it's tracking it and making sure you get your bass in and stuff like that. I guess when I started out, I was like, oh, I don't really know what this is going to entail. So I'm just going to do it from the get go. So I'm not blindsided later. And it's no skin off the, the client's nose or your nose. You know, it's 10% extra. The client pays it. You pass it straight on. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, is, there any, is there any instance where you'd say definitely don't do that, Karen? Like, you know, what if you're only going to earn six grand that year? Is it, is it like a complete waste of time then? It, the administration of completing the BASs um, and dealing with the ATO or if you're unsure about doing the BASs, you hiring a bookkeeper or an accountant to do so. It could be costly if your turnover is quite low. Yeah. Um, and if you if you're dealing with a client base that are smaller micro businesses themselves and on average aren't registered for GST or you're dealing with consumers, um, then 
by adding that extra 10% um, where there's price um, competitiveness, um, it may be a downside. Um, but on average, if you're dealing with larger businesses that are registered for GST, then it's um, you charge them the add the ten percent on, they claim it back, and it's um, in and out. And it's yeah. Um, yeah. So we should explain here that once you do register for GST, you have to complete something called a business activity statement, which is BAS. We can't use acronyms, people. Um, so what is a BAS? What is BAS? How does BAS work? Okay, a BAS is every quarter um, or month, um, and even there's an annual option as well. Um, you need to report your sales and your purchases to the ATO, and then how much GST you collected on your sales and how much GST you paid on your purchases, and pay the difference um, to the ATO. Yeah, so the cost there is uh, either the time cost involved in preparing that document or paying somebody like Karen, who does my bass each quarter to put that all together for you. It's not a huge amount, but um, it's an extra cost if you're not earning much. So I think, yeah, like uh, charging GST, just even though you don't owe it, is something maybe to consider maybe when you've got a relative income and, and you know, you, as you said, you're working with larger corporates maybe or, or, or not tiny, tiny businesses. So it is, yeah, but generally you only have to register when you hit that 75. That's correct, yeah. Cool. All right. So I get it. we've been talking about um, kind of setups and structures and stuff. When would you say it's a good time, if ever, should sole traders actually review their accounting setup? Because I know you, you know, you have to make a lot of decisions when you register your business and about how you're going to progress. Is, is it cash basis and all this kind of stuff? So, are there any kind of flags around changing your setup in terms of maybe turnover or income or, or things like that? Yeah, there definitely is. So initially, when you do start up um, your business, um, it's it's worthwhile sitting down with an accountant and sorting out what the best structure is based on um, your family situation, so your personal circumstances plus where you want the business to grow. So there's no point thinking at the moment I'm only earning $6,000. In the next 12 months, I anticipate it may be higher. So it's it's about planning and making sure the structure's in place and record keeping's in place um, for where you anticipate for the next probably 18 months to two years. Um, The second point in time is where um, your business is starting to expand fairly rapidly. Um, and you're, you're growing, your turnover's growing and your turnover's probably hitting, or sorry, your net profit's probably hitting around the $80,000 to $100,000 a year. And also um, something else we've talked about before is when it's not just your own income, it's your family income. So, you know, like if you actually combine your incomes and you're earning over a certain figure, that's another time to have a think. Is that right? That's correct. So if you've got family income that's getting up to the $180,000 or more, it's definitely time to have a bit of a review and just make sure that you've got everything in place um, so you're not being penalised with additional tax. Yeah. But, and, and sorry, I know I'm asking loads of questions. I'm actually using this for my own. It's like a free <laughs> free advice session. So when you say your income exceeds 80, 180, that's... Oh, oh, what was that funny noise? Sounds like a chicken. Have you got a chicken in there, Karen? Not today, I don't know. No, not today. Tomorrow the chicken's coming in. Did you hear that chicken, Belinda? No, I did hear that chicken. <laughs> Out, chicken! Okay. Um, so when you say family income is or exceeds $180,000, again, that's income after tax and GST and everything else has been taken out. 
family income exceeding that, that's what we call income for surcharge purposes or adjusted taxable income. There's a whole range of different definitions of income and it, it can be used in different ways. So um, 180 is important for Medicare levy surcharge and private health insurance rebates. Um, so basically, if you look at it as a taxable income, if it's getting around the 180, um, that's the best time to have a review of your situation. Okie dokie. And are there any um, kind of things that you should look at specifically? Uh, the Medicare levy surcharge, whether you've got private health insurance in place, um, business structures um, and, and whether it is worthwhile moving to a company or a um, family trust structure at that point in time. And also um, whether you're GST reporting um, the whether it's annual, whether it's monthly or whether it's quarterly, whether that still suits your cash flow. Um, because if you're reporting on an annual basis at the moment um, in a certain criteria for that, um, you need to be fairly disciplined in putting the GST to the side. Um, so converting to a quarterly basis may be better for cash flow. Yeah, that's a big change I made actually where I sort of had a bit of a fright one year about GST <laughs> and I I actually created – I did two things. I created a separate account for GST and I, I switched to quarterly. Yeah. It was yeah. a lot less I'm, stressful. I'm quarterly too. I think it's just, it's you know, we all can be pretty good savers for three months but expecting someone to keep that aside for a whole year is pretty tricky I think. So, yeah, I'm the same. Okay, next question. This one was a super popular one again in the community and, and basically is what can we claim? Uh, we know that many copywriters work from home, so what can they claim in relation to that? Uh, this is a bit of a, a three-parter here, uh, Karen, so you might get, get ready. So what, what can we claim? Question mark. If we're working at home, can we claim part of our mortgage or are we going to get hit with capital gains tax? So that was a question from Matt Fenwick. Um, so, yeah, just generally, what, what do you think in terms of home office expenses first? So home office expenses, you can claim such things as electricity, um, depreciation on your office equipment, so your desks, your computers, um, any equipment, um, whether that's um, an iPad um, for research um, and internet usage, obviously, um, as well. Um, there's other items as well, like subscriptions um, and travel, everything like that. Pretty much anything that's related to or you use in your business, um, there's a fairly good chance that you can claim a tax deduction for it or at least a um, percentage of that. Yeah, okay. But but when it comes to home, it's a bit more fiddly than that. So if you're renting, it's kind of fine. But if you own your house, it can be a bit different, can't it? That's right. We've got um, potential capital gains tax implications if you own um, the home um, and you're using it to um, as a place of business or um, as an income-producing purpose. So in Australia, we've got capital gains tax when you sell an asset um, and for your main residence or your personal home. This is, can generally be ignored, um, except for where you are using it as a place of business. Um, you may then have to pay um, capital gains tax on sale of that property. So I'm just going to translate. I'm sure that many people totally understood that first time around, but I like to hear things twice. So in Australia, there is something called capital gains tax, which you, are, you have to pay... You don't have to pay if you've just lived in your house, but if you've used part of your house for business purposes, then you might have to pay it. Is that right? 
That's correct. And it all comes down to whether you actually make a capital gain. So if you've made a gain on your house when you sell it and what percentage of the house you've actually used um, for income producing purposes. Right. Yeah. So this is like, you know, if you have a home office at home and you say, well, that's like, I've got six rooms in my house. So I'm going to claim one sixth of my mortgage for my business because I'm using that room for my business. Well, then ultimately when you sell your house, you could end up having to pay some tax. That's correct, yeah. Okay, cool. I get it, I get it. And just to to loop back on that, um, you can claim the interest on your mortgage but only for the floor plan percentage, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can also claim a percentage of the rates and insurance, so what we call occupancy costs as well. So you can claim... Huh? You can claim the interest on your mortgage but not the actual payments? So it's only the, the interest is the tax deductible portion if you're using it for a business. Um, the repayments um, can include both principal and interest. The principal is just repaying a loan, which is not tax deductible, and the interest is the only component you can claim. But if you claim the interest, you'll be liable for capital gains tax? Yes, potentially. Okay, cool. Right. Sorry, you confused me there. Um but if, if you're renting your property, then you can claim it and that's all cool. Yes, that's right. You just, um, again, work out the percentage of the floor space that your um, business is using um, and then claim a proportion of the rent. So basically, you know, if you're working from home, it might not be a great idea and that might be a good reason to get out there and go and work in a hub because then you can claim all of that back. Yes. Um, although it might be a bit more expensive. Uh, so that's, that's uh, we can claim for home offices, cooling, heating, we can telephone uses, internet, maybe interest if we're willing to take the risk. But um, yeah, there's other claims as well. Belinda's got a good question on this one. Yeah, yeah, this is a, a persistent rumour, I think, about us creative types and what we can claim, you know, for, you know, the things we buy for inspiration like books and movies so i want to know and this is a question i got from my students you know can i claim my kindle can i claim the books i buy on my kindle can i claim for movie tickets uh this is what we often get asked about um claims for research um so basically the answer would be yes, but you need to work out, would I be incurring this expense if I didn't operate my business? Would I still be going to the movies on the Friday night and seeing this movie? If um, if you wouldn't be spending it um, otherwise, apart from your business, then you've probably got a valid tax deduction for your business. Um, so if so it, it could be business books, tax deductible, Doctor Who fiction, not so much. Um, if you're doing some copywriting in regards to Doctor Who, oh potentially. Oh, my God, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but reference books related to um, business or um, guides on copywriting, for example, would generally always be tax deductible. Um, movies and fiction books, um, it would probably need to be considered on a case-by-case basis. Um, and if you do have an expense like this where you turn up to your account and you show oh, two movie tickets to Doctor Who and he, he just looks at you, um, it might be worthwhile during the year just making a, a little bit of a notation on the invoice or the, the docket as to why it relates to a current job or a sp- um, prospective client. Um, and they've probably got more of a chance of being able to claim that. I am so going to write a comprehensive ebook on how Game of Thrones has influenced my operating. <laughs> and then I can claim like back six. There you months. go. There you go. Creative accounting. I Love. always kind of had a little personal rule that if I ever had to explain it to the ATO because I got audited one time, 
could I do it? Yeah. And if That's I a felt, good way of looking at it. Yeah, if I felt icky about it, then I was like, you know what, it's not worth it. I know, but no. you feel icky about everything. You're so good. Anyway, <laughs> I've got a question about superannuation. Okay. Uh, our overseas listeners, of which I am an overseas listener because um, I'm from the UK, may not know that superannuation in Australia is like pensiony stuff in England. Um, and in England, we have pensions and we put money into them and then the big corporate banks steal all our money and get away with it. In Australia, what happens is something like, I so shouldn't be talking about this because I know nothing about it, but most people put like 10% of their salary into their super and then the government gives them something or something, yeah, I don't know, Karen? <laughs> so most people that are employed uh, will have their employer putting in 9.5% of their salary into super. Right. Um, there is uh, the government co-contribution where the government um, it matches that to $500 a year, but that's only for low and middle income earners. So not everybody, not every employee in Australia is eligible for that matching. Oh, I thought the government, like, gave you money. They don't? They do, they do. So if they um, co-contribution up to $500, but you need to be have taxable income less than $50,000 um, and you can't claim a tax deduction for the money that you put into super. So um, if you put money into super and you want that $500, you can't claim a tax deduction for the original contribution right. and, you, and you pretty much need to have the, um, taxable income under the $50,000 mark. Okay, cool. And I should explain here that... Um, I've never put any money into my super. I had, I've only had like real jobs a few times. I've always been a contractor or a sole trader. And I've, I've, you know, Karen has reliably informed me that I'm legally not obliged to pay myself super. And, and that's right, isn't it, Karen? Yeah, that's correct. So a sole trader has no obligation to contribute super for themselves. Um, but obviously it should be considered as an overall part of your retirement investment planning. Um, because when once you get to retirement, um, it's basically also superannuation that you're probably going to be relying on. I'm going to die at 65. I have it planned. So retirement. I'm, I'm, I don't need a retirement plan. I'm just going to die at 65. <laughs> anyway, sorry, moving well, on. What should um, what do you think sole traders should know about putting money into a super fund? Because that's something I've kept up, but I just kind of, I chuck it over and then I, you know, I have it logged in my zero um, accounting and I let the accountant kind of do his magic. Um, but is there anything we should know? Is it, is it that simple? Um, basically. So as, as I stated above, um, a sole trader is responsible for making their own contributions. You don't have the benefit of an employer doing it for you. Um, and to claim a tax deduction as a sole trader, there's a, a bit of a 10% rule test that you need to um, to meet. So this is probably only relevant for people that are running their their business and they may have a little bit of weight, um, income from salary or wages as well. So what it means is that you need to, um, if you've got 10% or more of your assessable income from salary or wages during the year, you won't be eligible to claim a tax deduction for any super contributions you make from your business. Um, so that, that applies even if the rest of your assessable income comes from your own business. But uh, what's been announced in the federal budget this year is that 10% rule will be removed, um, provided obviously the coalition wins the, wins the election next month. Um, and then from there on in, any contributions that a sole trader makes to super um, will be tax deductible up to a, a certain threshold. Okay, cool. So basically if I put, if I do 
choose to start putting money in my super, I can claim it back. That's, yes, so it'll it'll be another tax deduction along with your internet and telephone. Um, you'll get it'll reduce your income, um, and then you pay less tax in your personal name. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So I'm going to be claiming. I'm going to be doing that and claiming for Game of Thrones. Those are the two outcomes <laughs> I've got so far. Um, Okay, next question. Um, for low-income earners, you know, so copywriters who may be at the start of their copywriting careers or people who are, you know, only able to work part-time for other reasons, are there any tax incentives for low-income earners? There is in a way. There's the low-income tax offset. Um, so as we spoke about before in Australia, individuals are taxed on a sort of a sliding, um, sorry, a step scale. So anyone with taxable income of 18200 or less, um, they pay zero tax, um, no Medicare levy and no income tax. Um, and then depending on um, family income, so income from spouses, um, potentially um, you can earn about 20500 20, without any tax liability. So in your first year of um, business, um, you can earn that amount of money without um, worrying about putting aside um, tax money. Or, yeah, or GST. So that's good. That's okay. correct, yeah. Cool. I um, I have a question. This one comes from Sandy Forbes-Taylor, and it's about depreciable assets. So these are the things, obviously, that we buy as part of um, setting up and keeping our business going. The desks, the bookshelves, the computers, the iPad that you mentioned for research earlier, you know, all the kit that we buy to do our work every day. So what's the dollar limit for things that we buy that we can claim 100% back in the same year. Didn't that change recently? It has changed recently. So uh, before the the uplifted um, amount to $20,000, um, the general limit has been about $1,000 or less for small business entities. Um, and keeping in mind this is the GST um, inclusive price, less any GST your, your business is able to claim. So, for example, if you had an $1,100 laptop that you were um, purchasing, you claimed back $100 of GST, the asset would be then costing you $1,000. So that's just how that's calculated. And we can um, claim that back all, all in the same year? That's correct. So that'll be a deduction, um, in 100% deduction in the year that you incur it. Okay. Well, that's, that's – I mean, I don't know if uh, – how many people would buy many much more expensive things – Kate? Well, yeah, but you got your she shed. Yeah, but what about the $20,000, small business $20,000 asset depreciation? Yeah, so this is the $1,000 has been increased to $20,000 just for a short period of time. Um, it, it lasts until about 30 June 2017, so we've got another 12 months after um, this current financial year. Oh, so we should spend big then. Um, really, you should only be spending money that um, you would otherwise spend because um, it's not—it's not a grant, and it's not—it's um, not a twenty thousand dollars tax refund that you're getting. It's just an—it's just bringing forward the tax fraction that you would otherwise claim um, over the lifetime of the assets. So, bringing all the depreciation um, forward into one financial year. And is that to encourage spending? Yes, yeah. It's to encourage investment into businesses um, and obviously to give the economy a little bit of a boost. Okay, cool. And you had a quite good example of this um, that you were going to run through. Just to explain it for the 20000 
Um, so to, to give an example of how it can benefit a sole trader, um, so if you've got a sole trader that's got taxable income of about $98,000 and they acquire a $20,000 business asset, which may be a car, um, at that income level, the asset deduction would would result in a reduced taxable income down to 78 um, and reduce the tax payable by about $7,700 in that year. So it can be potentially um, worthwhile doing so. So before 30th of June, I should go and buy a $20,000 car. That's what you're telling me, Karen. Um, as long as uh, for a stock trader, you need to be apportioning if you've got any private usage um, on any of those assets. I can't actually drive, so let's not take that advice. It wouldn't be good. Um, so, so I can buy stuff. It runs out on the thirtieth of June. This no, the threshold applies until. Oh, can you explain when it runs out, please? Yeah, so we're yeah, two, um, thirty June two thousand seventeen. So we've got um, uh, after this thirty June coming up next week, we've got another twelve months of this increased threshold. Cool. And it covers computers, TVs, iPads, office furniture, software, motor vehicles, Xbox, PlayStation, even if, if they're in an employee lunchroom or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. But so I'm just going to tell a little story now. So I thought that I would, I've got a she shed, which some of you may have seen. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. I built a little shed in my back garden so that I wouldn't have to listen to my husband breathe in our shared office. And, you know, all up, it probably cost me about $15,000. And I was very excited that I could claim all of that back off my income because it's an office for my business. And I couldn't. Karen told me I couldn't. And I was really sad. Why couldn't I? Uh, buildings and structures like that fall under a slightly different um, set of depreciation rules, which we refer to as capital works. Um, and so they depreciated under a different part of the Tax Act. And unfortunately, the $20,000 immediate write-off doesn't apply to those assets. Um, instead, you get um, a very small amount of depreciation of 2.5% every year. So it's going to roughly take um, 30 to 40 years to write that building off compared to uh, being able to claim it in one go. So, yeah, that was a good day when I found that out. I think I may have wept on the phone. So I'm going to have to be a copywriter for another 40 years to pay off my she shed, basically. So that's that's pretty happy. I'm happy about that. Not. Um, I hope yeah. you went and bought some, you know, got some new SEO cushions made just so you love it a bit more every day. You're yeah, no, I curse my she shed now every day. No, I don't. I love it. But I just a good example of where I should have asked before I spent the money. Um, you know, so and I didn't. So there you go. Even the even the chicken agreed with me then. Did you hear? It? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so looping back to cars in your example, Karen, you talked about buying a car, um, and you mentioned that claiming that as a deduction that you can claim it as a deduction if it's a hundred percent use for your business. But if it's going to be a personal car as well, then it's kind of like working out your office space in your house, right? You have to work out how much is for personal and how much is for business. And that percentage would apply to your deduction. Is that a correct assumption? There? Yeah, that, that's correct. So if you use the vehicle 50% for private use, 50% for the business, then um, and the car costs $20,000, you will only be able to claim a $10,000 tax deduction. And does that apply to, to bikes? What about pushies? Yeah, that's right. So if you don't drive and use a bike instead um, it's and you use that to travel for work um, or for your business, then it's the same. Uh, the same. So if you've got a um, business use percentage on the on – the, sorry, the bicycle of 50%, then that's how much you can claim. 
Yeah, my husband claims his bike because he can't drive and he cycles to all his lessons and he's got a separate bike for his business. So, yeah, that's a good example of bikes. Um, a question about Medicare levy. So in Australia, there's something called the Medicare levy. Can you explain what this is, Karen? Yep. So Medicare levy is an additional tax on our taxable incomes. Um, it was implemented many years ago to partly fund our Medicare system that provides free or low-cost medical. Um, at the moment, the Medicare levy is an extra 2% and it's paid by everybody, all taxpayers with income over about $21,000. Yeah. So I recently, I've been paying that for myself uh, for gosh, a long time. And recently I had to stop paying it for my entire family. Can you explain why I had to make that change, Karen? Yeah, so um, everybody pays the Medicare levy and you were also had a private hospital insurance policy um, personally. Yeah. Um, and when your family income exceeds a certain threshold, um, there's an additional Medicare levy surcharge of um, 1% um, because your family didn't hold private hospital insurance as a as a family, so didn't cover all your dependents, so spouse and children. Um, so you were being slugged with an extra 1% Medicare levy surcharge on top of the already 2%. Yeah, so I, I have to... Yeah, so I now have to pay it for everybody. And because my husband has never paid anything ever or ever had private medical insurance, he's got like this loading or something. So we're paying an absolute fortune. It's insane. I actually hope, no, I don't hope. But I hope, you know, it's so much money. It's a big lump of money to shell out every month. But there you go. That's 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 what you pay for Medicare. There you go. Um, Karen knows that when I call her, I actually ask her to tell me that I'm doing a good job. I'm like, Karen, am I earning enough money? Am I profitable and stuff like that? Because, you know, you work on your own and no one tells you if you're doing very well. So I always ask Karen that, don't I, Karen? You certainly do. And as always, you're doing a fantastic job. Thanks, Mum. Um, but what sort of – question again from, from my little group. What sort of um, ratios in terms of sales versus profit should we be looking at? So, you know, I when, I, when we went through mine, I was like, you know, I can't remember what my – profitability was but it was something like I can't even remember that I was like is that good is that right am I spending too much to earn what I earn so can you give us some guidance on that yes so for copywriters and um Basically, you shouldn't have a great deal of overheads um, other than your home office and a bit of subscriptions. Um, there's not a huge amount of expenses going out um, unless you're using subcontractors and, and that will come into play as well. Um, basically, what we see on average net profit wise is around the um, probably around the 75% mark around the norm. Um, and then if you're using subcontractors, it's probably a little bit lower, maybe around the 50 to 60%. Okay, cool. Um, so it's good to kind of make benchmarks, basically. Yeah, it sort of gives you an idea that um, you're sort of on the right track um, and compared to other people within your industry, you're doing sort of similar things as well. Um, it's also great to, um, to improve and go above and beyond those benchmarks as well. Yeah. So just an example here to make that kind of make sense. So um, I, you know, over the last few years found that I was spending a lot of money to make my money. And I had a good look at, you know, one of the biggest expenses for me was subscriptions because I'd basically subscribed to everything. You know, I had my, my, my Mars and my MailChimp and Hootsuite and blah, 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 everything. And, you know, it kind of doesn't seem much when you're signing up and, and, and doing that. But then when you look at it month on month, it was a huge chunk 
chunk of my money. And I think I was spending something like eight grand a year on subscriptions, which is just mental. So it was good to go through my zero and make a list of all those subscriptions and cancel a lot of that. Cancels a lot of them. Um, and I'm managing perfectly well without them. So while it's great to use automated tools and things like that, make sure that you keep track of them. And I think the same goes to things like advertising. Like it's really easy to click boosted post and on Facebook or to, you know, splash out on something that you think might work, but it adds up pretty quickly. And then, you know, you kind of look at it and go, wow, I spent all that money. Did I actually get the money back in terms of investment, you know? That's why zero is so great because you can have a look at a month-by-month profit and loss um, and compare each month and then have a look at how you're tracking for the whole year and and see those trends of, oh, I'm spending too much in advertising um, and it's getting higher and higher each month. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's it. We're out of questions. Have you got any more questions, Belinda? No, no, I, I'm done. My brain is kind of full now. I haven't thought about finance this much for a long time, Karen. <laughs> I know, my brain is melting. Well, look, thank you ever so much, Karen. That was fantastic. Not a worry. Thank you for having me. That's been um, lots of fun. Great. Well, we usually finish up the show with uh, a review from one of our listeners. So I've got a review today from Jennifer Morton. Are you ready, Belinda? I'm ready. And she says, when I'm feeling blah and bored, I listen to hot coffee for a kick up the woohoo. I love that. <laughs> even when, even what may seem like boring admin stuff, like processes or accounts. Processes? Has, she said processes were boring. I know, how dare she. But it has the potential to rev up my writing engine. I get all warm and inspired to make my copywriting business the best it can be. If you're in the business of writing, hot copy is a must and I want more. Oh my God, I love that testimonial. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Jennifer. I need to kick up the woohoo, seriously. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to head to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. Your review helps other people find us and makes Belinda really happy. And that's what it's all about. Yes. So that's it, Belinda. Another episode in the can. Woohoo! We're going to count, count all my money now. <laughs> Go run me some reports. Run me some reports, baby. Thanks for listening and happy writing. I've forgotten how we start. Hello and welcome to the Hot Copy Podcast. That's Is that right? It. Yep. Okay, cool. We do this every week, Karen. We go, <laughs> how do we start again? What's our intro? <laughs>